0: Hi, I'm your host, James Trewick, and you're listening to The Art of Inquiry. In this episode, we sit down with Kenneth Crowther, uh, an old teacher and good friend of mine, and we discuss all things English. We talk about uh, English literature, why it's important to read good books. We also talk about the approach to have when studying or teaching literature, and I was really happy with this episode, and I hope you enjoy. This episode has been brought to you by the Millis Institute. More about that at the end of the episode. Yeah, well, let's jump into it. Before we get talking about the heavy stuff, uh, I'd like to just discuss more about you, so people have a bit of a feel for sure why you're even in the uh, the field at all. So, okay. what what made you want to go into teaching as a profession? And obviously, you've continued to work your way up the uh, I don't know what you'd call it the hierarchy of a school. Sure. So, yeah, what what made you? What's giving you that kind of a passion?
1: When I was in school at the school, I went to the school that I currently work at. Uh, when I was in school, I wasn't hugely invested in my education or in learning, but uh, I enjoyed myself. Uh, in my final year, I quit physics and chemistry and went into drama and media and, and had a lot of fun, so I just decided I wasn't going to be a physicist or a chemist or anything like that, so I may as well enjoy myself. So, not that those things aren't enjoyable, but they just weren't for me. But really, my motivation for getting into teaching was just so that I could do productions and hang out with kids. Uh not because I was passionate about education or learning, but eventually uh, the head of English was leaving and they needed someone to take that role. And so my bosses suggested that I did it. And so I kind of said, all right, what the heck? Uh, And at around the same time I was reading some stuff and kind of all of a sudden realized that it really mattered, education really mattered and had this opportunity to really think deeply about what education was and so when I became the head of English I sort of sat down and said well what should an English curriculum look like and because I didn't really know what I was doing because I didn't have a lot of experience with ACARA or QCAA these governing bodies that's you know that say what should be taught I just thought about it the way that made sense to me based upon the stuff that I liked reading and also the things, the philosophical kind of edu- educational sort of standards and things that I've been reading about. So that's what happened. And then from there, I don't know, you asked how I worked my way up the hierarchy. I kind of, I, I, I realized that's what's happened, but it was never an intention. I, I just kind of found myself in situations where there were things that I could say yes to, and so I did. So went from head of English to did a bit of work in like coordinating the creative arts eventually Director of Teaching and Learning for the last two years and now starting off as Head of Secondary, which is a very daunting task and not one that I'd ever, ever imagined.
0: I think there is still this shift that seems almost unaccounted for. Was there any turning point, anything you that kind of brought you to be like, maybe I should even inquire deeper about the things I'm thinking rather than just what you're doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, orthodoxy was a big one uh reading reading lewis and chesterton were huge but when i actually think about kind of going on and doing the study uh the truth is i had because of my approach to education being pretty chill i had a lot of time and so i and because i was writing plays and writing movies and stuff i really enjoyed writing so you know you mentioned the first masters of creative art uh, creative writing and that's That's what I really enjoyed doing, and so I started writing a book. and And I found, even though I had the time, I didn't have the willpower to really write this thing properly. And so I thought, well, if I if I'm writing a book, I might may as well try to study at the same time and use that as a reason. So Master of Creative Writing gave me an opportunity to write the books. What uh, what books have you written?
0: We'll well, see, like, because I guess you're a literature teacher. We're about to talk about literature. I feel like this would be pretty interesting to see. Even you've had the chance. Well, I guess you you tried to create uh, some good literature. (laughs) I have tried, yeah. Well, it's difficult to say whether or not it's
1: good literature because it kind of started out as young adult fiction and young adult fiction is kind of rarely good literature. Well, at least this is what I found. I mean, I kind of class... uh, To an extent, you know, Narnia is young adult fiction, even though it's probably young, young, like tweens or something. Um, and I class that as great literature because it does the job that it's supposed to do and has all the layers that Lewis intended for it. Um, and, you know, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. The Hobbit is really a kid's story more than yeah. anything else. Uh, Lord of the Rings gets a little bit more heady. But um, but I found after I had written at least the first one I've, and the other ones that kind of started that these days young adult doesn't mean... There's no room for a publisher... Uh, for young adult fiction to have anything other than intense action and humor and just make it short as possible and so that kind of that for me that put a stop on because I was like I don't know if these things are publishable these days.
0: Well, I guess that kind of brings us on to the next question, uh, which is probably might take a while to explain you can take it how you want. but uh, the question is why should we read good literature?
1: I think we should read good literature and really, you know, we can break it down and define our terms because who's we and what's good and what's literature, but I think that we should read good literature because we are humans, and good literature is about what it means to be human. So, you know, John uh, Henry Newman called literature, or the, the classics, the great books, the autobiography of humanity. And I agree. I think that you, when you read Shakespeare, you're reading about yourself. You're understanding yourself through Shakespeare if you allow it to happen and even if you don't allow it to happen uh if you you allow at least the words to get in and to actually and to think about the words sometimes it has an effect regardless of what you want but particularly if you allow it to happen then great literature tells you about yourself and i think it's uh instructive not in a really didactic way not in a moralistic way and you know some people would say that that Narnia is overly moralistic, that uh, the allegory is so obvious and it becomes really kind of didactic, preachy almost. Um, I still enjoy it because I think for kids, that's perfect, that's okay. Uh, And actually it's far more nuanced. There's so much more to it, you know, if you allow yourself to, to investigate that. But good literature teaches you about yourself in ways that aren't didactic, in ways that just kind of creep in and make you feel certain ways like feel unsettled or feel challenged or feel happy and you don't know why you're happy and those feelings are kind of i think reaching deep down into who you are not as an individual but who you are as a human and they are kind of reshaping or starting to reshape yourself to be more human than you were before you read that book because it's it's possible to dehumanize ourselves We're kind of the only animal that has this capacity to be less than what we are. You know, cats can't be less catty and dogs can't be less doggy. But we say humans can be inhumane, can actually act in a way that is inhuman. Uh, And we probably are dehumanizing ourselves all the time without realizing it. And I think that great literature rehumanizes us.
0: Yeah, well, you might have heard this, but the last interview I had with Ryan Messmore, one of the closing comments he said was... uh we should read fantasy because it helps us to intuit the world better. Absolutely. Uh, it kind of reveals things that you can't see necessarily just looking at the world as it is in the framework that we look at the world through. But fantasy has this way of drawing you out and seeing the humanness in characters that aren't necessarily human. And you see these things that seem fantastical, but they're actually relating to something truer than, than you would think.
1: Hmm. Um, well, I mean, that's, that's the ethics of Elfland. That's what Chesterton's talking about. He's basically saying, you know, we walk around in a world that we have called reality, and then we imagine this world called fantasy. But what is it that makes this world any less fantastic than the fantasy world? It's just the fact that we've gotten used to it. And so we assume that, well, this is of course the way that it is. And so apples grow on apple trees and lemons grow on lemon trees. And in a fantasy world where we imagine apples growing on lemon trees or them sharing the same tree or something, oh, that's amazing. But we should be amazed at apples. And we should be amazed at lemons and we should be amazed that the sky is blue. But not only that the sky is blue, but we should be amazed at the sky. This kind of endless expanse of there's nothing up there, but it looks like there's some sort of roof there, you know. And and the, the same thing is what Lewis kind of talks about in, in, I think it's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Eustace meets the star. And Eustace says, oh, the star is a human, human person kind of walking around. And Eustace says to him, Wow, where I come from, stars are just burning balls of gas, and the star says, even where you come from, uh, they're more than that. That's just what they're made of, and that's that's what we do. We kind of that's what science. That's a little bit about what my b- book was going to be about. You know, um, science reduces things, cuts things up, and says that we understand them, but we don't understand them. We just all we've done is cut them up. We just know what they're made of. Science, when you think about it, it just zooms in on things gets smaller and smaller and then says that this explains something but while just because we can zoom in and understand an atom and these electrons that are in it the fact that electrons exist and that they uh, want to balance out and that they're attracted to other ones and things like that uh we don't know why we just see that it is and kind of give ourselves a pat on the back and say oh well we've done the work we understand why but we don't we just understand what happens not why it happens so fantasy reminds us of that And fantasy helps us to see our world more clearly, because we don't. Chesterton says the things we see every day are the things we never see at all. So stopping and looking at our world not only helps us to see our world properly, but also helps us to appreciate our world, and might serve to bring a little bit of joy into a world that seems to be robbed of it.
0: It all relates back to (laughs) me. Well, hopefully I'm not just repeating everything that Ryan said. No, 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 but he, he even talks about just... Well, we were talking about liberal arts as a, as a whole and the way in which you study it so that you can uh, experience life the best possible way. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, well, that, that's great because like, you, you talk about this, this um, conflict between science and, and literature or it would seem more like poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's almost like they're both, they're both talking about truths and they're talking about them in different ways. It's just one of them we can understand as true and the other one might seem a bit more uh, abstract or yeah i certainly don't want to kind of reduce
1: science or say that science is uh useless or pointless or evil or bad or anything like that i just want to say that it's not as explanatory as it tells us and it's not the end it shouldn't be science full stop it should be science and there's more to the world than just the scientific understanding of it
0: yeah for sure and that that's that might sound like something that someone would say, yeah, yeah, of course, but you'd think about the way that that uh, applies to the world now and you would see that materialism and science and empiricism very prevalent and dominating of the fields, uh, especially the way people operate and think. Hmm. Well, pragmatism often is just reductionism.
1: So we reduce things down, we cut kind them of up and we say, well, here's the facts, these are the bare facts, you know? and it doesn't leave much room for human experience.
0: Yeah, true. That's great, yeah. Human experience. I like that. That's a good phrase. Um, like in the way that you experience something as a human, not just as a as a, a mind that That's understands right. something as facts. There's we
1: don't. You know, like we we don't actually have a scientific understanding of the world. The best that we have is our subjective experience of a scientific understanding of the world, and the science is kind of out there. We're still internally subjectively experiencing it and reducing subjectivity uh, is a dangerous thing, you know.
0: I'd like to talk about English uh, in a high school and as a part of education, uh, more than just a personal reading and understanding yourself and the world a bit better. Why why should it be taught in schools and maybe uh, you can expand on how it should be taught in schools as well? There's a bit of a
1: distinction I think between teaching, let's say there's three things. There's, there's grammar, there's English, and there's literature. And we kind of say English and we really mean all of those things. We rarely say literature. Not many classes at high schools have a literature class. There is a literature as an extension. Uh, you can teach, You can do English literature or you can just do English. But when you're in primary school, you're doing English, but a lot of the time they say, let's do spelling or let's do, you know, just letters in prep or, or sight words or something like that. So I guess the question is, if the question is why English in schools, what we really mean is why teach communication in schools? Because that's really what it is. Most of our communication is nonverbal and verbal, not really written. And English is just helping people to be able to do that well. And why do that? Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that kind of goes without saying. Uh, communicating is what makes us human. Uh, even people who have do not have the ability to communicate still, you know, in a verbal way, still communicate. They communicate with who they are. And as humans, what we do is we interpret. We, we uh, read everything all of the time. We're always doing it. And so we are teaching people how to communicate. And in that sense, if communicating is part of what it means to be human, then teaching English is really helping humans to be more human. Uh, The communicative capacity of humanity is something that we shouldn't take for granted. And so it really matters. So, you know, starting in the early years in prep, when you're teaching all the grammar stuff, the structural stuff, and, and on from there, well, that's the building blocks that you need. And a lot of people would say, well, that's it. You can put a full stop at the end of that. Once, the people, once someone can communicate, then that's sufficient. Uh, but as you would know, there's varying degrees of communicative ability. There's so many words out there in the world. Uh, if you just say good or bad every time you mean anything that's slightly good or anything that's slightly bad, then you're not going to communicate as clearly as it, you would if you could, if you had access to other words. So these are all kind of non-literature answers to the importance of English. But when it comes to literature, what we really mean is stories. Good literature might mean stories told in a certain way with a certain vocabulary and structure and things like that, but you can't have all of that. You can't have great words and great structure and a bad story. That doesn't redeem a, a bad story. And likewise, a good story can be a good story even told badly. You know, so my I've got three daughters. You know, my daughters tell bad stories badly <laughs> because they're young, right? They're two and four and five. But still, I mean, at that level, they're telling good stories well and they're learning how to tell stories better. Telling stories is what we do as humans. And like we said before, literature teaches us about ourselves, about what it means to be human. So when we get into high school and we start talking about teaching some, fairly intense classics some difficult texts we're doing a variety of things all at the same time probably the thing that i realized i care that cared the most about was helping people to realize they can do it helping people to realize they can read tough things there is no high school classroom in australia i would imagine i could be wrong in which there's not one kid probably a boy looking at a novel and saying I've never read one, I'm not going to read one I don't know how I don't want to, I'm never going to use this when I get out of school, my parents say that it's a waste of time, what's the point of doing this? And that is a sad thing You know, a hundred years ago, these books, or two hundred years ago, these books were read for fun by boys exactly the same age Right? These were things that were just designed to be enjoyed and it's A sad thing that people write themselves off like that. This kind of comes back a little bit to the whole, you know, why I became a teacher thing. People are capable of so much, and yet we constantly sell ourselves short and say that we're not not able to do it. I am certain that every person who is kind of a fully functioning adult has the ability to read, understand, and even enjoy crime and punishment. Not the act, the book. (laughs) <laughs> right. probably everyone has all the ability to enjoy the acts as well but no to, to enjoy the book to read the book to understand the book the only thing that's lacking is the willpower and one of the most common questions that I used to get as an English teacher because unfortunately I don't teach English anymore when, was when we were reading Shakespeare which obviously I love because I did my thesis on it is they're going what's the point what's the point of this and no one really liked my answer which was because it's fun because you will enjoy it And they say, no, I'm not going to enjoy it. It's not enjoyable. It's boring. It's stupid. And of course, the truth is, if that's their attitude, then that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I kind of used to tell this story about, let's imagine that you were stuck in a quarry of gravel. Or you just look around and all you can see is gravel. That would be pretty boring. That would be pretty rubbish. And you'd want to leave. Yeah, for sure. Um, But if I just change one thing about you, it will change everything you really love gravel. Now, if you really love gravel, you're having the time of your life, right? So what's changed? Not the gravel, the person. And if a person is willing to look at and understand things, everything that's been created in our world is enjoyable. The problem is not the stuff, the problem is us. And I know how much joy Shakespeare gives me. And I know how much joy Shakespeare has given you and has given other people, my students, my friends, random people for the last 500 years so there's obviously something there that's very very enjoyable and not only that I know how much fuller my life is for having done the work to understand and appreciate Shakespeare not only in literary form but on the stage as well and so it's really offering that experience to people saying your life will be more enjoyable if there's more things that you can enjoy speaking of Dr. Messmore he used to come and do talks here when he was in Australia at our school. He'd spent a whole day with the year 12 students talking about the abolition of man, which was just an amazing experience.
0: Yeah, it was great. I, I uh, actually studied at the school underneath uh, Diff as well. So, yeah. So you were there when
1: Ryan came? Yeah, yeah, and yeah.
0: his Bowden allergy and everything. And yeah. He's, yeah, so
1: good. And I remember he got to a point at the towards the end when he's talking about objective... Uh, value in things. Cause you know, the big thing in, in abolition of man is this phrase, auto amoris you know, the right response to things that, that it's not the thing. That's the problem. It's us and our response to the thing. And it was clear where he was headed and someone, I don't think it was in your year. I no, think it was, it was the year, the
0: year above
1: after, yeah. you or below maybe. Yeah, was, sure. yeah. Um, someone said, um, so does that mean that we should like classical music because it's like The best kind of music, apparently. And he just went on this 20-minute riff about why absolutely everyone should like classical music. The problem is that it takes work to get there. And if you're not willing to do the work, you're never going to appreciate it. But once you do the work, and once you learn to appreciate it, you'd never look back. You'd never go, that was a waste of time. You'd always be like, look at this whole new world that's been opened up to me. And that's what literature can and should be for everyone. Everyone has the ability to enjoy it. People are robbing themselves when they sit down and just open up the phone or sit down and flick on the TV instead of sitting down and reading the great works from the masters from the last 2,000 years.
0: When I graduated high school, other than the the prescribed books that I had to read, which I had read very little of most, unless it was Shakespeare because that's just like... Hold on, didn't you read Crime and Punishment? Yeah, so I read Crime and Punishment. Good. Uh, Did you read 1984? I read 1984. Did you read Brave New World? Yep, but that was all in the last year of high school. So, yeah. the last year. Every year before that, I think I read half of To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, you robbed yourself. I know. That's a beautiful book. I know. I um, cry every time I read that. <laughs> Actually, no, I think I read three quarters. What would, what well, would if you happen? didn't read the end, then yeah, it doesn't I know, matter. I, know, I, the I the would never part. read the end, and I would bludge my way through the, the first bit of it. Um, I didn't read it when I was in year 11 and I hate myself for that now because it's a truly wonderful book yeah and no I I, I, feel, I, mean I read two book series the only two book series I read growing up one was Diary of a Wimpy Kid which I which I, is a travesty I, and it's a it's a no, I, 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 I'm glad that I read that because no one else has read that and so I can give it to them and be like oh this is my recommendation <laughs> and it's a bit of, but that's other than that it was Percy Jackson that was the only other series which is fairly common yeah I mean yeah. that's just some YA,
1: uh demigod but it's stuff. got this kind of connection to Greek mythology Roman is it Greek it's, it's Greek mythology. Greek yeah, yeah.
0: But, and that that's what got me that's because I was in, I've always been interested in those kinds of things uh, but but I feel it now because I, I haven't read so many books that I really wish I had read and so I, I read a lot now because I study uh, the liberal arts at the Millis Institute and insert that plug there <laughs> um, but like I'm go- I'm going back through now and I'm reading, Tolkien stuff so I've listened to audiobooks for ages because I can listen to stuff really well but reading I haven't I'm like I'm very badly trained at reading uh and it's something I've noticed and I'm like I wish I had always read because as you were saying being able to communicate being able to filter things a lot faster so it's not even it's not only being able to communicate well it's being able to interpret what other people are saying well as Mm. well Mm. if you know exactly the precise definition of a word then you know exactly what someone's saying I mean, Peterson uses this example all the time with uh, the, the Bible verse about the meek shall inherit the earth, and he said and he never understood why the cowardly should inherit the earth, and then he did some research into what meek means, and he, he found out it's, it comes from uh, the description of like a soldier who has a sword but knows when to use it, mm. and he goes, oh, well, that actually instantly makes sense. And so I think, especially, I've, I've probably in the past four years experienced this kind of this journey where I'm... Forcing myself to almost catch up to people around me, who have got this already this ability to understand stuff precisely and communicate it precisely because they've they've trained in reading. So I, I mean, I think like I don't know where I was going. I, there was well, no, I mean, the, the,
1: the truth is that that's that's the problem. The problem is that you you can't just go from not reading anything to reading Dostoevsky. You know, like, that's too much of a leap. You can't go from not reading anything to reading Shakespeare. And, uh, but that's what happens. Because kids don't read, generally speaking. And I know, look, I don't want to be some naysayer, you know, doomsayer that's always saying this sort of stuff. But generally speaking, people are reading less and less. And audiobooks are great. I like audiobooks. For certain books, I listen to audiobooks, right, for certain things. Um... And you know, Kindle and stuff like that has kind of helped, I suppose. But generally speaking, people are reading less. But not not just are what they uh, not just are they reading less, but what they are reading is less. So if the height of your literary prowess was Percy Jackson. And then coming in a very close second, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. You know, if this is the most that you'd ever pushed yourself or been pushed, uh, I would put Diary of a Wimpy Kid as sorry first, as it. That's okay. oh, Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, the pictures are very helpful, but you know, there's no training there to be able to read this great stuff. You know, so you know, I'm I'm trying. It's difficult. My kid, my my eldest daughter, Rel can read now. She's just finished prep and so she's pretty good at reading. Obviously, there's a bunch of words she doesn't know, but she can read little little books, right? Um, and she can sound stuff out and work it out. And so I'm trying to read stuff to them. Like we, we sit around and we read picture books, but then I'll read a novel, you know, a chapter of a novel for them to listen to, just so they're hearing the words. So they're hearing, and not only a novel, not like Percy Jackson, but old stuff. So The Wind and the Willows, And stuff by Enid Blyton, you know, they love the faraway tree and and all that sort of thing. And they really fought it when they were younger. I probably tried to do it too early, right? But now they, I can see Rel's really listening and she's hearing these words. And that's a big part of it, is actually hearing words and hearing sentence structures and, and understanding that there's a variety of ways to make meaning and... In doing that, this is this is a training process. This is exactly what my dad. I mean, when we weren't some big academic family, um, to me, myself, and another brother have gone to university. One of my brothers is in the army. The other ones uh, working for Ergon. We're not like a everyone here is into literature. Family. My dad loved reading, and he used to read to us. And I don't think he even realised it, but he was training us, and all of us are big readers, even if we're not all kind of academic in that literary way. We're all big readers, and we're all and it was old books. He was reading old books to us, books that he liked. He wasn't that interested in whether we liked him. He was reading books that he liked, and so
0: we were listening to them, and that made a huge, huge impact. Well, there's like there's three different things happening there, right? So you've got like narrative and the power of narrative. And I remember, like when I grew up, like my parents read to me, of course, but as we got older, we got less interested in books. We grew up on a farm; we were always out. But we're always still telling stories, and we'll mm. sort of, we we didn't want to listen to books probably from the age of like eight or ten. But we'd still all sit around and make up stories, or tell jokes, or this, or watch watch good film. Mm. I think is a pretty interesting thing that still happens. And so I think narrative everyone everyone experiences a passion for narrative because you can't really talk with someone without listening to a story, mm. right? And so I think that's interesting that the play of narrative. But I think there's even There's an interesting discussion to be had around why read it instead of listen to it or watch it. Why is it that you can get something more from reading Hamlet than watching a theatre production of it or watching a movie of it? And I think maybe there's something to do with the fact that it's harder. It's a lot harder and it's a lot more purposeful to be able to read a book than it is to be able to watch a film.
1: Yeah. And the reason that it's harder is because all the work's been done and the work that's been done is the imaginative work. And so anyone who reads a lot invariably will say, oh, well, the book was better than the movie, right? Like 99% of the time, that's the case. I can't think of an example where it's not, but I'm sure they're out there where it's like, actually, that movie was great and the book was terrible. Maybe you know, Marvel movies because the comics, I don't know, maybe the comics are amazing. Yeah. Or maybe you know YA stuff where the writing's not great. I mean, Twilight's terrible in both aspects, so I don't <laughs> think it... But the thing that we're losing is not just that it's harder, not just the difficulty, but the process of creating the world with Shakespeare or with whoever this author is, you know. All they've given us is these words. Now, words have meaning, and words are priceless, but there's this subjective kind of interplay between us and the words. And so we are engaging with the words and playing with the words, and we can linger on the words, and we can we can dwell in places which you can't when you're watching a play. You're watching a play, so you were in Hamlet when, when we did Hamlet here, and you were Rosencrantz. Or yeah, was Rosencrantz. Rosencrantz. Right now, for eighty percent of the audience that came and watched it, didn't know anything about Hamlet. When they think of Rosencrantz now, they think of you, wearing your little blue suit, yeah. You know, and that's the kind of stuff that we used to do: yeah. color code characters for the audience because the audience, if they're not really, if they're not familiar with Shakespeare, they're going to struggle, right? But that's it. That's their understanding of Rosencrantz now. They picture you. They don't picture all the possible iterations of Rosencrantz and they don't picture a Rosencrantz that they've created in their head. They picture you. So the process, and the same for a movie, you know, the process of us engaging has been removed, like 80% of it is gone. Which is why I say this to my students all the time and they kind of look at me like, how do you know that this is what I do, right? We don't really even engage with movies anymore or TV. You know, we're watching something... And we're on our phone, scrolling through Instagram, eating some food and having a conversation all at the same time. And the truth is we're not doing four things really well. We're doing four things really badly. And so engagement, that kind of deep, deep engagement and focus and single-mindedness on something, that's the thing that's being lost. And that's a real difficult, that's a real important skill. That's a real difficult thing to do. Uh, Focus. Students inability to focus is one of the biggest things in the last 10 years that I've seen increase. Uh, that just sitting and listening or sitting and reading is a really, really hard thing to do because everything moves so fast. So I think that's part of the value of reading the words is that it is training for yourself, your disability to focus, but also it's engaging with the words on the page. Everything else, every other medium is constrained in time. But books are like time machines, you know? So if you listen to the audiobook, and I do this sometimes, but most of the time, you're not hitting back 30 seconds or back 15 seconds or whatever to hear that word again. You just don't do it. You just think, you're just listening to this narrative. If you're watching a movie, depending on the movie, but most of the time, you're just watching this movie. But when you're reading a book, you can stop. Like you can read a sentence slowly or quickly. You can skim it or you can study every word. And you can't do that with any of those other mediums. And that means that what you're doing is actually playing with examining these words and the meaning that they're creating. Which is why writing a book is such a hard thing to do. Because if you've got a critical audience, if you've got an audience that's just looking for the plot, they're not looking for anything except for plot, well then just tell the plot. Just do the plot, point after point. But that may as well be an audiobook or a movie because you're not doing anything inventive with words then. You're just using words as a medium to tell a plot.
0: Yeah, right, okay. Well, I guess even in there you kind of distinguish this difference between uh, narrative for the sake of plot and entertainment Um, because this isn't a a slamming of movies because they're so easy to uh, enjoy. No way. This is the opposite. It's actually just identifying there's something different that can be hidden under literature in the way that analysing it and reading it and taking the time to understand exactly what's being said can bring forth something more and even with a good film you can get that but you have to watch it again and you have to kind of already know the plot and understand what's happening and go what's this really mean uh, but it's it's a lot more prevalent in, in literature especially good good literature um, and that kind of brings me on to the, the next question which I wanted to really discuss uh, well yeah I wanted to question you about the uh, kind of curriculum that you chose and why you chose and we've kind of talked about it a bit but I remember when I when I studied English here it was in senior English there was four semesters and each semester was tackling a really big concept the first semester was truth the second semester was beauty third semester was goodness and the fourth semester was the human identity and each of those are the really big things and I think it's it's interesting the way that those things get communicated through literature um, and how well, we watched. What did
1: we do for Truth? Uh, for you, I'm not even sure I can remember, but I know we watched Inception. Um, I think we did. We No, we didn't. Did we do Total Mockingbird? Did 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 Mockingbird then? Yeah. yeah, and
0: I think we watched a documentary. Uh, sure, a yeah. The Gun Control one by. Oh, Bowling for Columbine. Bowling for, for Columbine. Yeah, sure. And Zeitgeist. Did we watch Zeitgeist? Yeah, Zeitgeist. And Zeitgeist that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and I think there was, there was a way that each of those things kind of taught us something. Inception was the most memorable part of that that semester for me anyway because, because it's a good movie <laughs> it's a great movie and i mean I, I feel like the first semester is probably the worst one for me to talk about because i didn't read uh, to kill a mockingbird properly uh sad uh, yeah very sad and, you know to kill a
1: mockingbird any one of these great works could fit in any one of these to kill a mockingbird could be could would find itself beautifully in goodness yeah. or in identity or in beauty you know so you just make a choice, really?
0: Yeah, yeah, and well, I guess that's the th- how do you um, guide someone to discover these deep, meaningful qualities underneath literature. I guess this is because the whole question's kind of been: read good literature. Good literature teaches you about yourself. It uh, illuminates something about humanity, and it we talk about fantasy drawing you out, and then you can understand the world better because you see that there's more to it than just your perspective and the materialism of it you especially you use literature to teach us about truth beauty and goodness and the way in which that uh, affects you and your identity and what it means to be human through those from the perspective of teaching those things using mm. this literature to teach those things mm. yeah how, how did you find that process
1: sure i guess i always struggled with the question of how prescriptively kind of didactic and closed should I be to students' experiences. In other words, how much should I predetermine the student experience of the chosen text? Because I can teach, and any teacher can, and this is what happens in every school across Australia, and it's often a very sad thing. The teacher teaches the text in a certain way and then the student experiences it only in that way. And I've got some problems with that. You know, I want to try to open the student up to the text and open the text up to the students so that they can kind of play together and I'm just, I'm sitting in the background watching them play. However, I want also to pay attention to the fact that I do believe and at my school we do believe that in objective truth, objective beauty, objective goodness. These are real things. Abolition of Man obviously is a key text that travels through all of these four semesters. So I, I wanna leave room for people's subjective experience and play with, with the, the books. But I also wanna help them to see what I think is the logical reality that these narratives are pointing to. So how how to do that is really just about talking about it. We did a lot of sitting around in a circle just talking about stuff. And that requires young people that are willing to open themselves up to discussion and it requires, even though I haven't manifested it today on this podcast, a teacher who's willing to be quiet and let people talk rather than do all the talking, which is a hard thing for teachers to do because they're kind of trained to talk and that's often what they do really well at. Uh, But, you know, sitting around, I've still got a copy of the recorded discussion that we had about uh, crime and punishment, you know, when there was, I think, just 12 students sitting around talking about it. Um, And that discussion was brilliant. It was just brilliant. And you you can hear people learning. You can hear them as they're talking, they're coming to new understandings about themselves and about the book and about the world. It's bigger. That's the, probably the thing that I love about it. It's bigger than the marks that you get or the essays that you do or the books that you read. It's bigger than school.
0: It's about life. Of course. I think, I think it uh, promotes uh, I think what it really does and the reason that it's bigger is because it gives questions, right? So the reading of, learning about Raskolnikov uh, can be entertaining, right? You can read Crime and Punishment and go, this is entertaining. Uh, but when it goes beyond that, it's when you start questioning either the morality of the character or, or the author, right? So say Raskolnikov was to get away with it and never feel any punishment and nothing was ever to be wrong. There's an experience there where you can go, that doesn't feel right to me. And even then you've questioned the intent of the author to allow this world to not have a punishment for a crime. Hmm. but um, So there's a kind of justice that exists that the author has to create in this world. Um, but I didn't want to get stuck in that too much. I wanted it more the character and the character's actions and what, what they do causes you to question. It's right, what you're saying is when you sit down and discuss, you're questioning this character and then you, you forget all about the character itself. I mean, I remember that hmm. discussion that we had and I don't think... Muscov was really mentioned after because we weren't talking about the book anymore. We were talking about the Yeah, yeah. We were like, oh, how is this just that this was to happen? Okay, well, let's put this in this perspective. And all of a sudden, all the book has been is a yeah a trampoline for us to jump into bigger questions that relate to the world. Yeah, I think that yeah, I think that's kind of what we've been discussing in the way that it can show you something true and something about humanity.
1: Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it. I think like great books are bigger than themselves you know so if you if you have a reading group with about you know crime and punishment and all you do is talk about the characters and the plot then you're I feel like you're almost doing that on purpose like that's a difficult thing to do you know and I'm a huge Harry Potter fan but Harry Potter is really as big as Harry Potter is it does get bigger and again you can kind of push it out a little bit so that you can you know Snape's character is probably the best example of that, as far as his—he's he's a lot bigger than he seems, and there's a lot more stuff going on in the whole past that he's got, and and the motivations for his actions. You know, Snape—Snape Snape for me is more the main character of the Harry Potter books than Harry Potter is, you know, because there's just so much going on and it's so complicated and it's—and it's amazing. And you know, imagine the story from his perspective. I think the 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 books, if they were written from his perspective, wouldn't have been good, but. When you get this kind of realization after realization about who Snape is and what he's actually been doing this whole time, it's incredible. Um, but generally speaking, books are as big as themselves. They don't—they're not platforms like you're saying. They're not platforms to talk about bigger things. But certain books and movies are—you know—that's the reason we choose Inception because uh, questioning what is real is is a part of being human, you know? So did we do Plato's Cave at the same time? I can't remember, but we do do now. We do Plato's Cave in the truth thing because really that is what we're on about. We're on about kind of this understanding that we only ever see the world through this kind of, you know, dark glass and the things that we assume are real aren't, aren't actually real. So these great... Movies and books—they help us to ask the kinds of questions that we don't actually want to ask, but that are good for us to ask
0: about ourselves and about the world. In in good literature, there exists things larger than literature, deep truths, and it's through reading it and actually understanding and digesting that these kind of truths can become apparent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't read—we didn't read *Crime and Punishment* because it was, quote-unquote, a great book. We didn't read it at the same time as excerpts from Inferno, because Inferno is a great piece of literature. We didn't read those two at the same time as Abolition of Man or Paradise Lost, just because we read them with a purpose, and the purpose, very, very clearly, was to help everyone who was going through that class to recognise that crime always has a punishment and that the wages of sin is death and that you cannot escape your punishment for crime. Even in the realm of forgiveness, natural law will have its way. Reality will always win. So it wasn't just because, hey, this is great, let's see what you get from it. It was... You are Raskolnikov. You are Satan in Paradise Lost. You are all of these people on the various levels of hell. And the things that you do every day in the pursuit of freedom and in the pursuit of pleasure are causing you pain and captivity. It, you know, and I, I'm kind of unashamedly saying that was, that was at the core of why we did those particular texts. Because for us to understand goodness and for us to be able to kind of be good in the world, we have to recognize the damage that a bad understanding of goodness does in the world. And we can enjoy ourselves while we learn about it because it's really fun to learn about it. But if I I think constantly about the image of Satan in the bottom of the frozen river, Cocytus, flapping his wings at the bottom of hell, trying to be free and keeping himself captive. That is a haunting image. The pursuit of freedom on his own terms is the thing that's keeping him captive and in that sense is the thing that created him as Satan in the first place. We all can and should learn from that. That's what literature does. And there's no reason that high school students can't have that experience. If they get that experience then, it's probably the only time they're going to get it. Unless they go off and study liberal arts, then this is it. Like, that's it. That's the last moment. So I could teach them how to deconstruct ads. You know, we could we could have a look at some ads in magazines and TVs and look at the gendered stereotypes and stuff. Or we could look at something more fun and more meaningful. And ultimately, hopefully, my prayer is always something that maybe when they're 30 or 40 years old, They'll just remember that and they'll see the last 10 years of their lives and they'll be able to hold up a mirror to themselves in their actions and see Raskalnikov in it or Hamlet in it and that that will help them to understand why they are where they are and
0: how they can get out of it. Yeah, I don't know how, how long you have. I mean, we could wrap <laughs> I don't up mind. around that. I've that's got work to do, but we can keep going. Yeah, well, I... <clears throat> Because I think that's that's interesting. Because that even answers the question: Oh, why should we read Shakespeare? Right. Well, if you want to, if you teach Shakespeare like it's just an enjoyable thing to read, then the question is: Why should you read Shakespeare if it's not enjoyable to you and you prefer watching a certain film or reading other types of books because they're just as entertaining? Right. Mm. So there has to be something more. And so the question, well, the response to that should be: Well, because Shakespeare tells us something about ourselves. But that necessitates it's taught as if it teaches you something about yourself.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that you can teach it just as an enjoyable thing to learn and that, like I said at the beginning, that the meaning and the truth can worm its way into you without you realising, you know. But I think... I find that young people are really, really uh, interested in talking about themselves and thinking about themselves. And so why not? You know, like, I, I don't have any struggles with it like young people are they they're so interested in it um far more than adults a lot of the time you know it's like we that it's like people become adults and they say oh it's time to stop learning now i finished school or i finished uni that's it no more learning for me you know and so you know getting them getting adults who have maybe not done any learning in official learning for a long time to start to do it is really difficult but Young people are just up for it, you know, as long as it's, as long as it's fun and it should be fun. That doesn't mean that you're catering to people's obsession with entertainment, but a literature class that isn't enjoyable is a sin, you know, it should be fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, and I think literature, I mean, this podcast is called The Art of Inquiry uh, and it's kind of based off the fact that like, you know, Socrates says the unexamined life isn't worth living. You go, okay, well then how do you live an examined life? What does that mean? Well... You have to question, you have to inquire, you have to get good at the art of inquiry. Uh, and it's, I think English is probably the most direct confrontation that someone can have in a school of really being forced to inquire deeper than what is there. Maths is you're learning about the thing and it's there's not much in, inquiry inquiry beyond that, especially to your own life. I think, yeah, that that seems to me to be a great way of tying in this discussion to the purpose of the podcast but mm-hmm. even just discussing it as in yeah it's its purpose is it teaches you to inquire about yourself
1: you know and you can tell that young people want to do it by looking at their instagrams all these like quotes all of these kind of they're not memes because they're not funny they're these deeply self-reflective sort of pseudo literary but there's nothing really of literary value in them quotes like this is that's what they want they're actually interested in this kind of self-reflective inquiry, looking looking into themselves to see who they are. Um, and if you do that, if you just look in to see who you are, well, if you're not anyone yet, what are you going to see? You're going to have this kind of uh, conflict of identity. And so when we look outwards and we see these great stories of these people, and this doesn't mean that they're great people. I don't want anyone to be Hamlet, but I think everyone is a little bit of Hamlet. So the more we understand him, the more we can understand ourselves. And, yeah, teenagers are right for it. They like it, you know. And teaching teaching English like that, I think it takes time to kind of refocus why people, you know, for students, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? But once it's done, you don't have to convince them anymore. It's not about the grades. I think that's the problem. I think that's a big problem is that, You've got to pass English to go to university, so you just do what you have to do. And these just become tick boxes, just stuff you've got to do to get through. But the real deep learning and the deep enjoyment is robbed, if that's the way that you're doing it. And unfortunately, curriculum is just becoming more and more like that. These are all the things you've got to do. You know, Make sure you get them done. Uh, And do them as fast or as efficiently as you can. It's not so much about necessarily the
0: deep learning and more about making sure you're ticking all the boxes music is always a great analogy right you think of someone learning to play piano and you learn was eight grades seven grades and whatever the beyond that is anyway if you learn those through each grade then by the time you get to grade seven you can play a grade seven song but you can't only play it you can understand it uh now you think of someone like i'm i'm uh Guilty of this, I play guitar, but I, I play it through tabs, mm. right? And so I can play songs, but I don't understand what's happening at all. Yeah, don't I don't know even, why the song was written that way. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's this whole world of music that has now been lost to me. Mm. I may be able to play to a standard that if you were to look at it just on its own, and I played that song just as well as someone who'd been classically trained to play that song, you'd go, wow, mm. they're playing the same song, they're at the same level. Mm. But there's a there's a huge difference that you could see but that's a difference only if people care
1: about certain things if we live in a world where people only care about ends and not means then there is no difference no if it's just a kind of this kind of pragmatist or utilitarian approach where it's like give me the product i don't care how you got there then there is no difference even though there is and the difference that there is, is almost like a valueless difference. Or maybe even has a negative value difference. Because the person who understands it all has all of this pointless knowledge. Who cares? That doesn't do anything.
0: Maybe. I'm just playing devil's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> advocate. But maybe until myself and whoever I'm up against get asked to write our own song. Or we get asked to go beyond the scope of what we've immediately been taught. Hmm. So then what have I got? All I've got is the ability to play this song what have they got? They've got the ability to learn, communicate, and teach themselves a new song, hmm. to write a new song. And so, yeah, I guess it does. It depends where you're looking. And I guess there is probably a question of where is the curriculum now looking? Uh, what, what are we measuring as success?
1: Well, when you have a listen to the rhetoric around education, and this is an interesting time for us to be doing the podcast because the PISA scores just came out like two weeks ago and Australia's getting worse and... Everyone's kind of going, why is Australia getting worse? What's going on? Uh, When you look at the things that we measure and the way that we fund and the kind of terminology that we use around funding for schools, it's always an economic argument. It's building the next generation of workers, right? It's not about building the next generation of are fully developed humans with a deep understanding of what it means to be a human in today's world. In fact, it might even be preferable if they didn't understand too much about what it means to be human in today's world because then they might be less likely to do the dodgy jobs and get paid the crappy wages that we want to pay them, right? Now, that's a, it's a negative picture I'm painting, but teaching students to question and to think deeply, not just to question authority for the sake of being rebellious, but to question uh, established norms for the sake of understanding more. Not just for the sake of questioning, but for the sake of understanding, which even though they look like the same thing, are completely different ways and reasons for questioning and end up in completely different places. One is about power, the other one is about growth. It's about personal growth rather than me just, you know, growing over you and then being, having power over you. These, these arguments that have been developed for education are all about creating people who are going to just grow up and pay taxes. It's about growth. And by growth, I mean it's about economic growth. It's about the future of Australia's economy. Now, the future of Australia's economy is important. I'm not disputing that. But I don't think it makes any difference whether or not they learn these practical skills in school, learn how to deconstruct advertisements in year 11 English, or if they get taught the kind of stuff that we did here. I don't think that one of them creates more or less productive people. But when you focus on production only, productive people only, you lose out on stuff. So Cardinal Henry Newman said it the best. Everything that is good is useful, but not everything that is useful is good. So when you focus on the good, you get the usefulness. But when you focus on the useful, you get some bad stuff thrown in. You get a kind of cutthroat pragmatism. You get a brutal capitalism, which is about making the most amount of money possible. You don't get necessarily uh, citizens that are interested in creating a better world. So you can create useful people by focusing on what is good. Because then the kind of useful they'll be would be a good useful, and not a useful which will be selfish or you know self-seeking.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Ryan said. I'm just gonna keep referring back to. He's just got so many gold nuggets. Uh, listen to that episode. Um, I will. <laughs> he uh, he says. I can't remember if he was quoting someone or not, but he was like, uh, "It's good and good for you." Hmm. And like that's a, a that's a great question because they yeah, have. Maybe there's something good to learn maybe it's good to learn about the way in which advertisement can manipulate manipulate you and make you want something. if you only judge things on what is good then you miss out on what's good for you and maybe so it, it's also good for you to know that you're being manipulated but what's better for you I think is a, a question that can be asked if two things are both good and it's hard to decipher how one's better if they're both good and they're both make you question in some way, or make you understand, question what's being told to you. But what's better for you? And once you focus on that, I think it almost, it's a a larger discussion, it's a harder discussion to argue for, I'd say, because it becomes a little bit more subjective.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe the reason that it's become a problem is that these three spheres, and you'll remember me having spoken about this before, anthropology, theology, and philosophy, we're not really teaching any of these things anymore. You know, so the decline of the church has meant that basically people's theological understanding is next to none. Where do people learn any kind of self-understanding, sort of anthropological understanding of what it is to be human? And philosophy is something that you only kind of engaging in university if you're that way inclined, right? Not many people are really into it. But, they, but these three things are happening all the time. You're always a human surrounded by humans, so you're deeply entrenched in anthropological learning it's just not formalized and it's through your own weird subjective experience. Theology is everywhere because you walk every day of your life with a theological assumption or with varying, often contradictory, theological assumptions. And philosophy is everything that you think about everything. But because none of these three things are actually spoken about, when we have a look at the, I agree, good and good for you, learning about how to understand ads in the way that they're manipulating you, well, hold on, there's a more deep important thing for us to think about before we can get to this ad thing what are we like what's a human why should we care if we're getting manipulated by ads i want to be manipulated by ads because i want the ad to tell me that i'm going to enjoy that beer and so i'm going to go and buy that beer and that's fine with me why do i care about the ad what is a deeper reason to care about the fact that i'm being manipulated right and so i think when these three more fundamental things are discussed Helping people to think. Helping people to use logic. Logic is, it used to be a subject. This is years ago. My dad always tells me he used to study logic. In high school, logic was a, was a subject. So philosophy and the teaching of logic and reasoning and kind of s- s- syllogisms where you're just kind of going through and making sure that everything's lining up and making sense. This is gone, right? The teaching of theology. And I don't mean a particular theology. I just mean reminding people that they have a theological assumption. If they... if person X is an atheist, then there are, logically, and you need the logic to be able to say this, a variety of things that follow from that. If they are a Christian, well, you know, there are a variety of things that follow from being a Christian. This whole idea that we can just pick and choose random bits of everything and jam it all together and say, this is it, this is what makes sense. It's it's, it's backwards. And then thirdly, anthropologically, you are always acting as if you are a certain thing. And if you don't think if you don't think about what you are and if you don't examine what you are, like what Socrates said, right? Like if you don't live an examined life, then you will go basically unthinking through the world. And at that point in time, when you've got an unthinking thing that doesn't know what it is that they are or what the other people around them is, who carries a a mishmash of illogical, contradictory things about theology and whether or not they believe in a God and what that God's like, and they don't have any kind of underwriting logic governing their day-to-day, then whether or not an ad is manipulating them, is who cares? Like, who cares about that, right? So I don't want to demean that, but we've lost more fundamental things. We've lost deep, deep fundamental things through the erosion of the church. Primarily, the erosion of the church and the erosion of the family. These are where these things would rightly be taught how do you learn anthropology from your family how do you know what it is to be human well you look at the humans that you're growing up with and they're teaching you how to be human they're teaching you the values of being human what are we learning theologically well we're learning that from a church right and again i don't mind if it's not a church but you know all the atheists should get together and have a church and they should actually say well this is what it means to be an atheist who knows There might be fifty thousand atheists that go count me out i actually that's not what i thought but it's just because they haven't thought about it. And then school is the place where logic and philosophy can come in. That makes perfect sense. That's really, that's maths, that's grammar. These are logical, structural things. But because those other two aren't getting looked after, it's kind of become, and you, you hear this everywhere. Now, they don't put it exactly the same way as the way that I've just put it, but you hear teachers in schools everywhere saying, we're just picking up the slack of everything. We're not just a school. All of a sudden, we're kind of pseudo-parents. We're babysitters, we're making sure that they're eating properly, that they're getting enough exercise, but not too much dangerous exercise, that they've got their sunscreen on. Like we're doing all of these things because all of these other social structures are starting to crumble. And the one that's remained consistent has been the school. So more and more stuff is just coming to the school. I think everyone can see that that's happening, but maybe they don't pinpoint it in the same way as what I just did by recognizing that we've got an anthropological crisis, a theological crisis, and a philosophical crisis. And as much as possible, if if schools are able to kind of speak into those things, then at least they're kind of doing something to help those young people. I think still
0: within literature, there exists this potential to communicate these ideas and ask these questions that nothing else can really do as well. Like sure, Maths can teach you logic, but it teaches you logic in a strictly mathematical sense. Mm. It doesn't teach you about questioning the way you act logically or your arguments logically. And even history teaches you what happened, but a lot of the time history isn't breathed with a life into it where what's happening directly affects the way you're living now. Or I think a lot of this stuff can really come through literature and the study of English. Because it is almost intrinsically, it is because it's narrative based and because it has this stuff there waiting for it to be brought out, it is almost so natural that there would almost, I would would gamble that there would be a kid in every grade that has had that experience with literature, regardless of the teacher, because at least they've been able to read the book and there's that there for Hmm. them. Hmm. And so, yeah, well, I think it does all connect back to literature and the way in which, Teaching of literature does that. But even if you get taught literature horribly, at least you've got the literature and at least it has the potential to be brought out if you're able to.
1: Yeah, that's right. You can learn... You can get that stuff despite the learning environment. Absolutely. Don't know that it would be that enjoyable, but you can. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, and that's good. It's good. And that's the power of literature. It's why we should always make a place... For the reading of books in our own lives and the reading of old books. It's not just because they're old, it's because they've stood the test of time. And the value that's been found in them 100 years ago is still being found today. And so, therefore, they're saying something about deeply about what it is to be human, not just what it was to be human at a certain point in time. So, this is why these old books that we still read today, they're not just, the, the, the fact that they are still around is proof. It's testament to the fact that we should
0: still read them. Yeah, in the previous episode we were discussing. I just got—I don't know if you saw—I just got the, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica's Great Books Collection, oh, of the nice. fifty-four set for one hundred and twenty bucks. Jeez, yeah, that's nuts. It's insane. Who's selling that? Some, Some rich, nice dude. No, he—he oh, right. he, he used to read them all the time. Oh, and now he's got teenage kids, and he's like, I don't have time to read anymore. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, no, and it, even in the first book, the first line is almost. It's like, it has been assumed that the best education is by reading great books and what the great books were were the the books that have continued to stand the test of time. And the question isn't about, well, it, it, the question that makes them good is, well, why has this stood the test of time? Mm. And you read it and that's why you're questioning it. Like, Mm. it's almost like just in reading something because it's an old book and then go, oh, why is this so great? Just because it's old. Even in asking that, there's something there to be brought out too. Mm. And I think that that's yeah. I mean, I could go on forever. Um,
1: but we could. Yeah, we we clearly have spoken for far too long.
0: Jeez. Did you have more questions? Yeah, well, I do have more questions, but
1: be- I'm am just far too verbose, and I apologize. So I can you can you can ask them, and I'll answer them as briefly as possible. How's that?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't. I don't you can mind. put me like on a timer. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, <laughs> one of my questions I wanted to ask, and because we're talking about it all abstractly, right? We're saying this teaches us something about this, and we kind of allude to to references of. Skarnikov teaches us crime punishment teaches us about the crime and the punishment mm. and how they interact. Mm. So, but I wanted to maybe get more into the into the nuts and bolts of it. So, I wanted to ask you what your favorite Shakespeare play is because obviously, it's a oh, it's impossible. <laughs> well, pick a, a Shakespeare play that you're in love with at the moment, and I want to know why and what what Shakespeare is teaching you in this play. You can take time to answer; that's fine. I will. That's the that's the hardest question you could ask.
1: Um, what have I really loved recently? I really like Cymbeline, but I think it's just because it's wacky more than anything else. Um, I find it difficult to look past Lear and Macbeth and Hamlet as the three plays that I feel like say profound things to me. And probably if I was... Well, no, okay, how about this? I'll go Winter's Tale because i really love and i did it the first time i read winter's tale i'm like what is this garbage right like it's the weirdest play you've got this opening scene which is you know or opening you know act which is just great classic kind of shakespeare crazy kings doing crazy stuff um you know so uh, the the king sees his wife trying to convince his friend to stay and hang out with them uh, because he's asked her to, and then when he sees her doing it, he's like, "Man, they must be having an affair," and he just gets insane, and he's even planning on killing his friend. So his friend escapes, and he throws his his queen into jail. She's pregnant; she has a kid. Uh, then um, the kid uh, escapes, and the uh, and the the wife dies, and then it's like thirteen years later, which. Is weird, like you just don't see 13 years later very often. I don't know if it's 13, but... Um, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the kid's grown up and living somewhere else. And, and and there's just weird shepherds doing stuff and there's a bear and there's a big party and you're kind of like, where are we now and what's going on? This is kind of crazy. And then it all finishes and it ends up back and the right at the end, there's a statue of Hermione, the queen that had died, this statue that's being created. And the last, like, two pages have this statue come back to life or, or come to life. I shouldn't say the statue comes back to life, but this statue comes to life and it's Hermione who apparently was dead. And I was like, this is, that's dumb. This is a dumb play, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I do that sometimes. You know, I love Shakespeare, but I still do that where I'm just like on the first or second or whatever read, you know, I'm just like, this is, this is just silly. And again, it's not until you play Play makes it sound like you manipulate. It's not until you dwell with the words and you look deeply at what it is that's happening that it impacts you. And this is a this is a play about what we see and the way that the way the way that when I look at you and I prejudicially read you, I actually transform you. So it's a way that we impact each other. That's what it's a play about. It's the it's the way that we impact each other and that he had this ability... Well, this is a reading of it, and of course Shakespeare is like... There's millions of readings of it, but this is a reading of it that I'm enjoying at the moment, which I think is telling me some profound things about myself. You know, Leontes, the king, has this ability to look at his wife, to judge her actions, and at that moment, he sets her in stone. He says this... He makes her a statue. He says this is what she's doing, and he's not interested in hearing from her. He, he cuts himself off from her. And so in that sense, he makes a statue of her. The real her can never get access to him again. He only ever engages in this version of her that he's made. And it's not until the end when he's gone through all of this learning that this version of her that he's made can kind of melt and come back to life and the real Hermione can really be there with him again. And that's cool. Like that's We do this. We do that to people all the time. We don't meet people where they're at. We don't let people be who they are. We have these expectations and requirements of people and then we set them in stone and we say, this is who that person is. And we don't allow them to break through and be who they really are. And so there's people all over the world that hate each other and they shouldn't because they've never really spoken. They've never really known each other. So that courage to know people and to allow yourself to be truly known by people, I think we're lacking that a lot. And a reading of The Winter's Tale is demonstrating
0: the the power of allowing yourself to be known by people, which I think is great. Peterson talks about it a bit uh, in his Twelve Rules, where he's talking about listen to someone as if they've got something to teach you. And even he applies that to yourself and when Mm. you're thinking, he says, because you're always in discussion. You're always in discussion. Even when you're thinking, you're having a discussion with yourself, because to think means that you've got two different points. You're, you're having an argument in your mind about something. And if you don't even know how to listen to yourself, if you don't know how to present one argument properly, then you're not even thinking properly. Hmm. And so even that, the way that you can see something in your mind, you can just have one position that you will never, ever, ever take seriously because you will never have actually thought about it properly and never presented it to yourself properly. Because you could tell me something all the time. This was, I assume would be what would happen in classes. You can tell these kids these nuggets of gold. And they would see it and they go, oh, who cares? Mm. And then all of a sudden, that nugget of gold means nothing. Mm. Not because it's not actually valuable, but because in the mind, they have presented it as something other than that. And, you know,
1: as much as I appreciate Peterson, which is an amount, like, I'm not a huge Peterson fan, like, I want to go a step further than that because Peterson, he and I haven't listened to him enough to know if this is true, but um, the very fact that he says listen to people as if they've got something to teach you kind of has this... um, what can I get from this person and I guess I want to go a step further and say listen to people as if you really care about them not what are they going to teach you but what uh, can you give them and the thing that we can give each other is the time to actually really hear and to know and to hear your personal experience and to care about it enough not to project my own experiences back onto you and say oh well this is what I would do or this is what that's like what happened to me but just to hear it and then to ask questions not because I'm trying to learn something but because I know that uh, you being able to speak that to me is actually good for you people want to be heard and a little bit if we're just listening to people so that we can learn it's kind of almost like we want to extract the goodness and then we don't care about the person but he might not be meaning that I just thought I'd throw that in
0: yeah, what did I, I, Yeah, it's no, it's listen to someone as if they know something that you don't. Yeah, sure, yeah. that's good. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I, and obviously there'd be different facets to it. I mean, when I think of Shakespeare, I have a similar one. Uh, Othello, for me, has quickly become my favorite Shakespeare play.
1: Yeah, you really loved it when we did it in class. Yeah,
0: it was great. So, uh, we, we, uh, Diff came and taught at the Millis Institute for a Shakespeare, uh, intensive, and yeah, we did a few plays. I mean, Hamlet is always. I always love Hamlet, but yeah, Othello. I just like it's once because we read that once before in in school. Did we do it in the corner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was entertaining, mm. but wasn't until the second time you start understanding these the way that these things interact, like innocence and the way in which, which innocence and purity can instantly be disfigured, not because of itself in any way, but because of the perspective on it. Mm. Uh, it's, it's really similar to what mm. you are saying about turning someone into a, a statue. You turn innocence into evil mm. because you have a corrupted world and you see that everything must be corrupted and therefore innocence must always be doing something wrong. And even in viewing innocence like that, you've killed it. Mm. Did you like Iago? I mean, Iago... I hated him because I loved Desdemona. Yeah, right. That's good that you love Desdemona. That's Not everyone does she's just so I, I think uh, that's what I wrote my, po- my paper about I yeah. I hated that people tried to give Desdemona the, the, the argument People, oh she's so one sided she's such a one, oneness of a character there's no dimension to her mm. like, that's the point that she's so pure that like to be able to see flaws in her is almost what how I read it was like that's what's already happening to her that's what kills her mm. is seeing flaws in this perfection mm. uh and but, I mean, Iago's just great as well. Like, he's, he's, he's up there as one of the greatest villains yeah. of all literary history. But yeah, I mean, mean, yeah, so I don't know. That's definitely a way that I've learned a lot through literature because I would not be able to have this conversation three years ago. No. And you wouldn't have wanted to, probably. No, and I would have found Desdemona boring. Yeah. She would have bored me. I would have gone, why is she so boring? She's just there in a pretty dress and she looks good. Who cares? Yeah, she's just a foil for these other men to do some stuff. Exactly. And yeah. I loved I loved Hamlet because he was so interesting, right? And now I almost have that approach to Hamlet because of Ophelia. I mm-hmm. Hamlet. Like, I almost hate Hamlet. I've, maybe I've, I've sided with the, the heroine a Become lot more a now. Yeah. Um, Because of all these evil men. No. But yeah, I don't know. Even that's an example of how Shakespeare and coming back to it, and I'm sure if I read Hamlet again, I'd probably come away from it with another Mm. understanding too. It's a cow that gives fresh milk every day. Never stops. It's one of his (laughs) key (laughs) lines. That's great. Uh, Okay. So we've got, I've got one last question, um, which is a question that I will ask everyone. What are two book recommendations you could give the audience? One that pertains to what we have discussed. Uh, be it a great book of literature or just uh, just anything about understanding literature? And the other is, what's just a general recommendation you have for the, that you've found beneficial to The Art of Inquiry? So it's these two. What's a great book that you would, for this discussion, and then what's a great book just because it's a great book?
1: I've already made the recommendation that I'll make just because it's a great book. A Cedar and its Discontents by R.J. Snell is a revolutionary book for me. It frames a deep uh, problem in modern society, uh, which is this yearning for freedom on everyone's own terms and the destruction that that brings. It frames that perfectly. I think it makes kind of blindingly clear sense. And obviously, as James mentioned before, it's what my, and what inspired me to do my uh, thesis on Acidia. Uh, so everyone... Absolutely, everyone should read that book. As far as the other one, uh, a book connected to
0: this discussion, we'll see it was a little bit, but... It could ju- it could literally just be, what's a great book of literature that someone who's now listened to this and gone, I need to read literature. Okay. What should they
1: read? Well, that's difficult, because if I just start where I want to start, maybe they not, might not be able to enjoy it that well if they haven't had the training. But I would say every, every single person should read Paradise Lost. Uh... You will learn more about yourself in the person of Satan than you will in most other literary creations.
0: But it's hard, but it's worth it. Paradise Lost is the business. Well, that's okay, because last week, Messmore said everyone should uh, read C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and so they can go C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Milton. That's right. So he he got to choose authors, and I had to choose books? No, he said these books by these guys. Did he say so, Abolition of Man? Uh, no, he talked about... Learning in war times and oh, okay, on the reading cool. of old books. Yeah, nice. because so that was like pertaining to the discussion. It was like, but in terms of great book, everyone should read Narnia. And then once they've understood Narnia, they should go to. Oh, wartimes. he's a wise man. Can't dis- can't disagree with that. That's great. <laughs> Hey guys, I just wanted to jump on here before the ad read just to uh, thank you all for the launch of the, the podcast. It went really well. I was really happy with the amount of engagement we got. A lot of uh, people were sharing and suggesting it to their friends, and I just wanted to thank you again for that. Also, this podcast is now available on all major podcasting platforms, so make sure that you subscribe to it or follow it on your preferred podcasting platform. That way you can make sure that you're notified when we upload a new episode. So yeah, thanks for the support. Make sure if you enjoyed this too share it with someone that you think might enjoy it as well. And uh, thank you very much. I would just like to thank the Millis Institute for sponsoring this episode. Millis is a Brisbane-based liberal arts college aiming to get students participating in the great dialogue of humanity that is the great books. If you were interested by anything you just heard then from Kenneth Crowther, then please go to their Facebook page at the Millis Institute or just look them up on Google.